The last uh, month or so, David has been teaching through the major passages in the Bible which deal with marriage and related issues. We want to look at another one of those passages this morning. But I thought you might be interested, first of all, in what happened to me last weekend. I was teaching at a couple's retreat in, uh, up at Daystar near Donnelly. And I was teaching on Ephesians chapter 5. And uh, as we started our session that evening, there was a storm that was building on the far side of the lake there, Cascade Reservoir. And as we began, we could hear the rolling uh, thunder in the distance. And it began moving across the lake as we began. And uh, as I got uh, right to my first point there that Paul makes in Ephesians 5, I said, now, wives, what Paul means here is that you are to submit to your husbands. Kaboom! (laughs) The building rattled and the window shook and all the guys took that as a heavenly exclamation point. They began began clapping. And uh, so I continued and I got to my next point, which was that submission does not mean that wives have to keep their mouth shut. So I said, now wives... You are to tell your husbands exactly what you think, and husbands, listen to them. Kaboom! <laughs> the building rattled, and of course the wives began clapping at that point. And, and then when I got to the section where I started to talk about husbands loving their wives and giving themselves up uh, for them, the lights in the entire complex went out. And, uh, we weren't sure what to make of that, but... Uh, so I doubt if I can uh, promise the same uh, sound and lighting effects this morning, but uh, I would like for us uh, this morning to discuss the issue of uh, sex, both uh, outside and within marriage. Now I realize uh, some of you are probably, I know, think this is all we ever talk about up here, and uh, if you're in that camp, I would ask for your indulgence at least one more time. But I realize in moving into this subject that this is a very delicate and uh, sensitive issue for us. Uh, Our emotions are highly charged and and highly sensitive in this area. We are no more uh, vulnerable uh, than we are in this area of life. Now, the scriptures deal with our sexuality very forthrightly and honestly. I feel a little bit... um, uh, Fearful, in, as if I am treading where angels have fear to trod. Uh, and Paul wades into some relatively deep waters in the section we're going to look at this morning, and I propose that we wade right on in after him. But I realize this is a delicate issue for many of us, and I would like to, to pray with you as we start that God would make our hearts uh, soft and receptive to his word this morning. Lord, we do pray as we open your scripture to discuss this issue that you would uh, give us uh, hearts which are soft uh, and open, not resistant, but hearts which are willing to learn and to respond to what the scriptures teach about this very important area of life. We pray that our discussion this morning would be handled with sensitivity and with taste and with uh, tact. And we pray that you would give us the grace to honestly confront the teaching of Scripture and then to set about the business of making it real in our own lives. Uh, We thank you for your grace, your offer to be with us and participate with us in this time of instruction. And We look to you for illumination and for instruction. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
think one thing that none of us in this room would disagree with is that our culture is preoccupied with sex. Uh, we are just uh, bombarded with a blizzard of references to sex in commercials and television and movies. Sex sells everything from razor blades to toothpaste to uh, mufflers for your car. And we just cannot seem to, to get away from the subject. Now, some people do think that because uh, sex is a physical drive, just like the drive, say, for uh, hunger is, that it ought to be satisfied uh, just as we satisfy our need for food in any way we see fit and as often as we see fit. Uh, but I think uh, that even given that analogy, it's clear that something has gone uh, very wrong with, with sex in, in the West, that we... It's become distorted and uh, warped and twisted and is, is completely out of proportion in, uh, in human experience. The way C.S. Lewis illustrated this is he says, imagine, this is a variation of his illustration, but imagine, if you will, he says, even given the fact that sex is a physical drive like hunger, let's take hunger, he says, and let's imagine uh, that this drive, which we all consider as normal and healthy, let's imagine that all over the United States of America there were, were theaters which uh, men would sneak into and would pay four or five or six dollars to go into a darkened theater and uh, watch for an hour and a half on the screen while different people ate hamburgers and drooled all the while. Now, he would say you would draw the conclusion from that that something has gone terribly wrong with the appetite, the normal appetite in American men. Well, I think that's an indication of the way that sex has become distorted in our society. Now, this distortion is not due to a lack of exposure or discussion or research. This issue has been studied and researched. Polls have been taken and published. And the subject has been aired as thoroughly as it never has been before. And yet today, people are as abysmally unhappy and dissatisfied in this area of life as they ever have been. Despite this explosion of information and knowledge and discussion, we are not any closer to satisfaction and contentment in this area than we were when we started I think the reason is clear that in this sexual explosion we have drifted from our moorings, that we have failed to take into consideration what the Scripture honestly and forthrightly teaches us about this area of our lives. The Scriptures uh, face this area of life realistically. It's uh, the kind of subject that we would like to ignore and hope it goes away or gets better all by itself, but Scripture is realistic enough about us to know that, that things left to themselves will deteriorate rather than improve. And so Paul, in 1 Corinthians 7, which is where I'd like you to turn, just kind of wades into this subject and tackles it head on. Uh, I'm enough of a klutz that whenever I get uh, some new piece of equipment around our house, I always make sure that I read the directions from the manufacturer. I got a little stereo cassette player with the headphones here not too long ago. Simple little piece of equipment, and I was amazed to discover that it came with a booklet five pages long with instructions. And as I read through these instructions, I realized that as simple as that mechanism was to operate, that unless I paid careful attention to the instructions, I could do some real damage uh, to the machine and also to my hearing. And it's the same with sex in America. What has happened is that uh, millions of people have 
been using the equipment without reading the instructions from the manufacturer. Now, now I am no uh, sex expert, do not claim to be, and Paul was. He was an inspired apostle. He had been appointed by the Lord to give us authoritative teaching about all of life, and his authority in this area of life is as firm as it is in every other area. So I propose that uh, we read these instructions together and learn from an inspired apostle under his authority. Now, all of us in this room are either single or married. Um, Those of you that are single are single either because you've never been married or because you have previously been married but now are not, either due to divorce or the death of a spouse. And Paul has a word for each uh, group that's represented in this room this morning. This letter was written to the Corinthians, and if there was ever a group of people that needed instruction about matters of sex, it was the uh, Corinthian population. Uh, Corinth had a reputation in the ancient world for debauchery and immorality. In fact, the Greeks invented a verb to Corinthianize And the meaning of the verb was to live in sexual immorality and debauchery. Uh, Above the town of Corinth was a temple uh, dedicated to the Greek goddess of love, Aphrodite, which was serviced by a thousand sacred prostitutes. And every evening, they would flood the streets of Corinth, and merchants and businessmen and sailors from all over the Roman world would purchase their services just as if there was a building of that type on Table Rock and every evening prostitutes flooded the city of Boise. You can imagine how difficult it would be for a pure lifestyle to be lived in that kind of uh, loose environment. The atmosphere in Corinth and its moral standards were probably more like the moral standards in contemporary America than any other city in the ancient East. So these people needed this kind of instruction just as we do today. Paul begins in the first two verses with a word to those who have never uh, married. It says, Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. Paul is responding here to a specific question raised by some of the Corinthians who suggested that if our environment morally is so bad and so corrupt, perhaps the best thing to do is to make a decision to abstain from sex and marriage altogether, just to withdraw as completely as possible from that environment. Now, Paul's counsel here is quite uh, balanced and quite practical. Uh, The Jews on this subject, the Jewish rabbis, taught that a man had an obligation to get married. It was his duty to marry, that if a Jewish man did not a Mary, he had slain his posterity. The rabbis taught that there were seven groups of people who would not be allowed into the eternal kingdom, and the first group were men who did not have wives. So it was a, an imperative for a Jewish man to be married, and so naturally these Christians in Corinth wanted to know if this perspective was correct. Now Paul says if a man chooses to abstain from sex and marriage, it is a good thing that he chooses to do. The word touch here, by the way, in verse 1, is simply a euphemism for sexual intercourse. Paul is not talking here about a friendly hug or an arm around the shoulder, but about sexual intercourse. He says if a man chooses that as a lifestyle, it's a noble thing he chooses. 
it is praiseworthy in the Lord's sight. It's something that God approves of. It's an excellent decision. But Paul is realistic. He says it is only a good choice if you can handle that single life in sexual purity. Uh, that if you do not have a firm control of your sex life, then the best option for you to pursue is that of marriage. Uh, now, it appears to some that Paul has a low view of marriage here. The reason to get married is to satisfy your sexual urges. But I think we need to remember that Paul is responding to a specific question here. This is not a general treatise on the subject of marriage. And that this is the same man who wrote Ephesians 5, which has one of the most exalted views of the marriage relationship in all of ancient literature. There, Paul says that the relationship between a man and his wife mirrors or pictures the relationship that Christ has with his church as high a possible view of the marriage relationship you could get. But what Paul manifests here is very clearly the perspective that we find throughout the scripture is that God has designed the marriage relationship to be the relationship in which man is sexually fulfilled, in which the sexual drives of both men and women are satisfied and are met. But the scripture is also clear that it's the only relationship in which sexual expression is to take place. The scriptures are unanimous that sex before or outside of marriage is prohibited. It's off limits. It's only within the commitment and the freedom and the security of a marriage relationship that sexual intercourse between man and woman is to take place. Now, some people think that God is being a cosmic killjoy, sort of a cosmic wet blanket uh, raining on our parade. But the reason God has drawn these boundaries as he has is because he knows as the manufacturer, the creator, that immorality, sexual activity, before or after marriage, will destroy us. It will harm us. It will devastate us if we participate in it. Uh, I noticed on my uh, mower last week as I was mowing this warning on my bag. It said, caution, do not remove bag while blade is turning. Now, is the manufacturer trying to take all of the fun out of mowing my lawn? <laughs> well, no. That uh, warning in bold letters was designed for my protection to keep me from cutting my foot off. Now, the warnings in Scripture about sexual behavior are the same. They're there for our protection because God knows us, having made us, what satisfies us, what will make us content. And immorality will hurt us. It will destroy us. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.18 that the immoral man sins against his own body. That uh, the immoral man destroys himself. In fact, destroys his own body, as what Paul says. I was forcibly reminded this week of how literally true Paul's words are today. All of us are familiar with the herpes epidemic that is sweeping America. This is a disease, a venereal disease, which has no known medical cure and is transmitted through uh, heterosexual uh, contact. Absolutely no cure. People who are afflicted with this will carry it for the rest of their lives. Uh, the the uh, AIDS syndrome among uh, homosexuals, the acquire, acquired immune deficiency syndrome, again, is a fatal disease. It uh, keeps the body from fighting off disease. It's fatal in almost every case. 
and the majority of people who are afflicted with this disease are in the gay community. So Paul's words have become literally true. The immoral man sins against his own body. And God has designed the physical consequences of this to reflect or to mirror the internal consequences. That just as immorality attacks the body, destroys the body, so it attacks the soul of a man and the spirit of a man. And God knows that and wants to protect us from the destructive consequences of our own behavior. So Paul's words to those who have never been married is that you have two options. One is an uncompromising life of sexual purity. Uh, You do not bend the rules in any respect. Or marriage. Those are the two options that are open to you. And as a disciple of the Lord, this is the decision that a single person must make. A commitment to live life as a sexually pure individual before marriage. Now Paul goes on in verses 3 through 6 to address uh, married couples. has a word for them as well. Let the husband fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again lest Satan tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of concession and not of command. Now, it's clear here that, the, that sex within marriage is a beautiful thing. There is nothing tarnished or tawdry or shameful about the sex relationship between a man and his wife. Right from the very beginning of creation, God affirmed the goodness of man's sexuality and his uh, sexual relationship within the bonds of marriage. When Debbie and I were... Uh, designing our wedding invitation, she uh, said, Brian, I'd really like to put a verse on the front of our wedding invitation. And I said, oh, that sounds good. How about Genesis 2.25? And she said, oh, that sounds good. Until she looked it up, and it said, the man and his wife were naked and were not ashamed. <laughs> and uh, she said, well, do you have any other ideas? Uh, but clearly, God has put his, his stamp of approval on the sexual relationship within marriage. Now, the marriage relationship provides them the greatest potential for sexual fulfillment, but it also, unfortunately, has become the relationship in which there has been the greatest disillusionment and greatest unhappiness. I think it was Oscar Wilde that said that uh, Niagara Falls is the second greatest disappointment on an American bride's honeymoon. So... There is potential for disillusionment and for unhappiness. And yet, if we will acknowledge Paul's authoritative words on this subject, I think there is help for us in this regard. When Paul says in verse 3 that a husband is to fulfill his duty to his wife, uh, he's using a commercial expression. 
Literally, that phrase is, let the husband pay his debt to his wife. And likewise also, the wife is to pay her debt to her husband. Now, when married couples enter marriage, they generally do so with a sense of anticipation, a sense of eagerness, a sense of willingness to give themselves to their partner. And yet Paul says that Christians must realize that when they entered marriage, they also assumed a sexual obligation toward their partner. Uh, That a man now has a responsibility, an obligation, a debt in the area of the sex relationship that he owes to his wife. It is his responsibility, his obligation before God to satisfy his wife's sexual needs. And likewise, Paul says, the wife has a responsibility, an obligation, a debt, to use his term, to satisfy her husband's sexual needs. So that sex is not a favor that we grant to our spouse, but it's a responsibility that we owe to them, that God has given to us. Now, Paul goes on to say, uh, elaborates further by saying that the wife no longer retains authority over her own body. Uh, There are bestseller books now out on the market with titles such as uh, My Body, A Woman's Owner's Manual. And what Paul suggests is that thinking is, is fallacious and must be challenged. That a woman no longer has the right to do with her body just what she wants to do with it. She has voluntarily given that authority over to her husband. But likewise, the husband no longer has the freedom to do in a marriage relationship whatever he chooses to do with his body because his body is now subject to the authority of his wife. Now, given Paul's clear statement to this effect, I think there are a couple of implications that we can draw from this, first of all for wives and then for husbands. The implication for a wife, if her body is subject not to her own authority any longer, but to the authority of her husband, is that a wife ought to be willing as often as possible to respond to her husband's sexual desires, to say no as rarely as possible. Another way to put it is to have as few headaches as possible. Now, one of the things that disturbs wives in this area of life is that is the frequency with which their husbands desire this. And it's a difference in the way that God has made men and women. Women generally are satisfied with a less frequent rate of activity in this area than their husbands are. And this often appears to wives to be something which is twisted and perverse about their husbands. But that is not true. God has made them that way. And part of being the partner that a wife is to be is to learn to respond to that learn to to minister to her husband in this regard, to be a servant to his sexual needs. Now, the implications for the husbands are at least twofold. One is that if a husband's body no longer is his own to control, but is his wife's, then he must commit himself to learn how to satisfy his wife sexually, to learn how to meet her needs. This is not something that comes naturally to men. Uh, The studies have indicated quite clearly that women respond to physical stimulation more slowly than men do, and men must learn to take this into consideration in learning how to serve their wives and meet their needs in this regard. Part of the problem here is most of the sex education that we men picked up was from uh, locker room conversations or television or the movies, and this 
information is almost hopelessly distorted. But there's no longer an excuse for ignorance in this area for us as men because of the good quality material that's available in this regard. Uh, We insist that any uh, couple that we as a staff marry avail themselves of some of this information so that they go into marriage understanding uh, the reality of the sex relationship, not in, in, in any kind of ignorance. Now, a second implication of this is if a uh, man's body is no longer subject to his own authority, but to the authority of his wife, is that he will never force himself on her, that he will be willing to recognize that there are times when his wife, due to illness or fatigue or some other cause, simply not prepared to engage in sexual activity. And because his commitment is to serve her, not to satisfy his own needs, he will be willing to forego it on those occasions. Now, there's a further implication from what Paul says in verse 5 for both partners. Paul says in verse 5, stop depriving one another. Now, Paul continues the commercial metaphor that he used in verse 3. Literally, he, the, the verse reads, stop cheating or robbing or defrauding one another in this area. So he says that no partner in the sex relationship has the right to unilaterally decide to withhold or to abstain from sex. To do so is to deprive your partner of what rightfully in God's economy belongs to them. So the implication is that we must never use sex as a weapon in marriage to either punish or to manipulate our mates. Now, Paul says there's one concession to this rule about uh, abstaining from sex in marriage, and that is if you fulfill three conditions. You may abstain if it's by agreement, that if you both agree on this together, if it's for a limited time, if it's just a temporary abstention, and then if it's for the purpose of prayer, that is if a couple decides to have some protracted time available to work through some issue in life in prayer, then that's okay. But Paul says, then you must come together again, lest Satan tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So the word to those who are married in this room this morning is that your body has been given to you by God, not to satisfy your own sexual desires, but to satisfy the desires and the needs of your mate. You must learn to be servants to one another in this regard. Now, Paul goes on in verses 7 through 9 with the word for those that uh, have previously been married but are now single. It says in verse 7, I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. Paul almost uh, certainly was married in his lifetime. Uh, From what I mentioned earlier about the Jewish perspective on marriage, Paul would have certainly have fulfilled his orthodox obligation to marry as a young man. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, according to Acts 26, and we know that almost for certain a man had to be married to be a member of the Sanhedrin. So Paul at one time in his life was married and either was now divorced because his wife had left him because of his Christian faith, or his wife had died. And Paul is describing people in this paragraph who are in that condition, who are now divorced 
and have no possibility of reconciling to their mate. The scriptures are quite clear that if you are divorced from your mate and there is the possibility of reconciliation, you must pursue that. And you must not remarry until your partner has foreclosed the possibility of reconciliation by marrying themselves. But if you're in this condition, Paul says you have two options. Again, you can choose to remain as I do. Paul says that's the choice that I've made. But he realizes that it takes a gift from God to do this. Once the sexuality of a man or a woman has been aroused in marriage, it takes a gift from God to live life then as a single person without that kind of relationship. And Paul says if you do not have that gift, if God has not granted you the gift to successfully and easily to control your sex drives as a a single person, then Paul says it is better to marry than to burn. Now, I want to mention that I believe by unmarried here in verse 8, Paul is referring to divorced people. And I want to indicate just briefly why I think that, because this is a, a sensitive subject. Notice in verse 8 that Paul contrasts unmarried with widows. So the people in verse 8 who are unmarried are unmarried, but not because their spouses have died. Two different categories of people being described. In verse 34... Paul mentions two types of women in verse 34, the woman who is unmarried and the virgin. Well, a virgin is someone who is single because she has never married. But Paul is contrasting that woman, a virgin who has never married, with a woman he calls an unmarried woman. Well, if a woman is unmarried, but not because her spouse has died... And if she is unmarried, but not because she has never been married, then the only category left is that she is unmarried because she is now a divorced woman. And Paul confirms this in verse 11 when he says, If the Christian woman does leave, that is, divorce, let her remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. There clearly the the term unmarried refers to a divorced woman. And that's where Paul says quite clearly that if you are single because you have been divorced, your first obligation is to seek reconciliation. But Paul says if reconciliation is impossible, your spouse has remarried and you are now single, or you are a widow, your spouse has died, and you find it difficult to control your own sexual life, then marriage is the best option for you to pursue. It is no disgrace to remarry. The feelings that you struggle with as a single person are nothing to feel guilty about, Paul says, because they indicate that God has not granted you that gift. Now, obviously, the question will be raised by anyone who is single in this room is, what about the interim period? What about this time while I am single and struggling with my sexual urges, and yet God has not brought a mate into my life? Well, this is where we need to remember that Paul, in Galatians 5, tells us that one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit is the fruit of self-control. That is, God will grant to single people the power and the capacity to remain sexually pure until the point at which he brings a mate into their lives. Well, those are Paul's words to us. If we are single in this room, the standard is uncompromising purity until marriage. If we are married, Paul's words to us is to learn to become servants to one another, not acting selfishly to satisfy ourselves, but acting in ways to satisfy and make our mates content and fulfilled in that area of our marriage.
the Lord's table is a good uh, communion to celebrate on a day like this when we discuss the subject because none of us have a clean track record in this regard, uh, either in our thought lives or physically. And we need to remind ourselves of the blood in this case, that if we have been guilty of immorality or have been guilty of acting selfishly in our marriages, that there is forgiveness for us on the basis of the blood of Christ. And also we know that we now have access to the bread of life, to the life of Jesus himself, to enable us now to be the kind of people that we ought to be. Let's uh, stand and we'll close in prayer. Lord, we do admit this morning, honestly confess that we have not been what we should have been in this area of life, that we have often acted for selfish reasons. We've been guilty of immorality and selfishness. We confess that to you, ask you to forgive us for that, to dust us off, to set us on our feet, and give us a fresh start. We thank you too, Lord, for the availability of the life of your Son, and pray that all of us might uh, renew our commitment to depend on you and to cling to your life within us, to give us the self-control that we need, and to give us the self-giving and serving spirit that you ask us to have in our marriages. We ask now that you would uh, send us forth uh, as people who walk in purity and uh, stand out as lights in a dark world. Thank you for your grace to enable us to do this. Amen.